0: So my dad's diagnosed with terminal brain cancer and I mentioned before the break that I was able to be present for the next seven months, but not at first. <laughs> at first we had lots of activity because we were told that unless he had surgery he would be dead within a matter of weeks and that if he had surgery they, could, they couldn't they could cure anything but they could remove the tumor and prolong his life by up to 18 months. So he obviously had the surgery. And, by the way, he never heard that. When the doctors approached him to tell him he had brain cancer, before they could give him any prognosis, he interrupted them and told him that lots of his relatives had cancer. Um, They all lived 5 to 15 years, and he would do the same. And my siblings and I... You know wondered for a while well, should we correct him? Should we you know tell him the truth and After some uh, prayer, we just decided that you know unless he asked he he heard what he wanted to heard, he said what he needed to say, and it just wasn 't our business to butt in. but he had his surgery and he came and he did well, and he came home from the surgery, and my fear set in. I mean just paralyzing fear. I showed up at his house uh, when we took him home, and then I went back to my sister's, and then I went back to his house and just cried. I mean, I was so afraid. Uh, And I remember sitting on the floor, and his head's all bandaged up, and I'm weeping, and he's patting me on the head and telling me, we can't live like this. We're we're just going to have to do this one day at a time. (laughs) And so I went home and I, and I wrote a short piece of fear inventory that i 'd like to share and I like to share some inventory because for me, it was so helpful when people shared their inventory with me I, not that this is not the kind of inventory I wrote at six months sober or one year sober it 's the kind of inventory I write today so it 's not to compare but just to let you know where god has what God has revealed to me and and the the beauty of this this spiritual walk I had um, Half a Dozen Fears, the prayer was, God, please help me find you. Help me walk beyond the fear to the place of your, your peace. And my fears, uh, I'm afraid that my dad will suffer overwhelming emotional pain about his cancer and possible death. Why? I'm afraid of how he'll feel, that I won't be able to make him feel better. Self-reliance fails me because no matter what I do, I can't ensure that he'll feel any different. Can't do it. I'm afraid that I won't be able to help him. Why? I'm powerless. Again, I can't rely on myself to come up with the power to help him. I can't even be sure I know how or what kind of help he needs. I'm afraid that he'll die without knowing how much God loves him. Why? Again, I'm powerless over this. No matter what I do, I can't guarantee that Dad will have a loving relationship with God. I arrogantly presume I know what he needs. And my father had no real faith, and he was, he was afraid to die. I'm afraid he'll die not knowing how much we all love him. Why? Uh, Do I really want the power to control his mind and perceptions? Yep. (laughs) I do want to be God on this one. I'm afraid that he'll suffer physical pain with his disease. Again, it's out of my hands. I can't even rely on my very best efforts of manipulation to prevent this. I'm afraid that he won't get to do or live the way he's always dreamt of living and that he'll have regrets. Why? I can't make this happen. I can't control what he does or feels. Self-reliance fails me. You know, and all these fears are about how he'll feel, how he'll, you know, his experience. And then I got to the truth. You know, the real fear was that I'm not, I'm afraid of his life from now until his death. You know, I got to see how selfish I am. I believed that with you, people like you and God, that I could let go at death, that I would be okay, but I don't know what to do with my feelings while he's alive. I'm more afraid of his life until death than I am of his death. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's just the height of self-centeredness. Why I'm an a, uh, I'm an absolute coward, totally absorbed with self. I have no power to change what my dad feels, so my response is to eliminate the source of my discontent. My fears that I will be uncomfortable while he's alive will rob me of being able to be of any service to him. Self-reliance not only fails me, it allows fear to steal my last opportunities to share time in life with my father. The better way? Trust and rely on God. Trust that God will not forsake my dad. Trust that God will direct my actions if I'm willing to play the role he assigns. Turn to God in all things, every fear about my dad's life, about his feelings, about his actions. If I really want to walk my talk, I must be willing to depend entirely on God, to truly allow that part of me that believes she knows best to die. For the first time in my life, I think I understand the true meaning of the word courage. The dictionary defines it as the ability to conquer fear or despair. To me, it is to come face to face with the prospect of the hole in the donut, by allowing that part of me that desperately wants to hold on to die and to let go to God. And then my prayer was, God, forgive me. Take away my fear, my selfish desires. Direct my attention to what you would have me be. Please use me. And it, it was freeing. You know, it's, it's not always pretty to see just how selfish and self-seeking I am. Um, and what this boiled down to is I would have been more comfortable with his immediate death so that I wouldn't have to feel bad imagining what he was feeling. But thank goodness, thank goodness for that awareness, because with the awareness came the willingness to be changed, and God took the fear away. You know, And one day at a time, I was present. I mean, I was genuinely present. And um, because of my circumstances, because I was just going where I was guided and I had no idea, that living in this little bitty room at my sister's meant I was going to be available to my dad. You know, I um, my office, by the way, at that time was just literally two miles from his home. And so at lunchtime, I'd take him for radiology, you know, or we'd go have his favorite Chinese, or we'd do this, we'd do that. I learned his physical therapy and helped him with that. And and so I saw him at lunchtime, and I saw him, you know, after work on my way wherever. And... and um, My dad trusted me. Um, I was his power of attorney. Um, I had his wallet. Um, I took him to the bookie. (laughs) Nobody knew where the bookie was. (laughs) And um, just one day at a time... That process of being present with my father taught me so many things about love and about intimacy. And one of the greatest things I learned that I love to share is how it transformed so many things. But up until that point, I really believed that to be happy, I needed to live as though every day were the last day of my life. And with my father's dying experience, what I came to understand was to know a new happiness... I needed to live as though every day were the last day of your life. Yeah. And my dad let me practice that one day at a time. Yeah. And it, was, um, it wasn't was always easy, but it was beautiful. And when he died at the end of May 2000, uh, he is, was a gambler. And the nur- he ended up in the hospital the last week of his life. He, um, the nurses had a, a pool going on. Did we have the Indy 500 at home? And, of course, my dad, you know, he got in on that action. And uh, he died May 31st, uh, and he won the pool. (laughs) And he was already unconscious by that time. But um, something else I learned, you know, going back to this um, second step, what is my conception of God? My father, uh, when he went into the hospital... He heard what the doctors were telling him, and what they told him that morning was, "You've probably got less than six months to live." And he heard that he was dying, and so he began dying. And within a week, well, within a day, he was unconscious. Um, and um, my dad's cancer was diagnosed because he started; he had a seizure. And the seizures just scared him. Oh, they just literally—he was more frightened of the seizures than anything else. And um, and he had two more. And one of the, during one of the uh, earlier in his illness, he was hospitalized because they had put him on Dilantin or some anti-seizure drug, and he had a bad reaction to it. And he was in the hospital, and I went to visit him, and and um, he was shaky, and they were getting him off that drug so they could get him on another one, and. And uh, he was trying to avoid having a catheter, and, and he needed to urinate. And so the nurse handed him the urinal, and, and we asked if he needed help, and he said, no, no, I'm fine. And So we step outside, pull the curtain, and it doesn't sound right, what he's doing. <laughs> and so, so, Dad, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. And uh, so when he was done, we opened the curtain, and uh, he had urinated all over my coat. And uh, yeah. and this is, I don't know, I just think it's such a beautiful metaphor because um, I was so grateful that my dad could urinate. Okay? And it didn't matter that he had peed all over my coat. You know? He had no more control over that than I had over my alcoholism. You know, he was doing the best he could. And... Um, But anyway, they got him on some better medication, and and so he didn't have any more seizures. Um, But those last three days of his life, before he lost consciousness, um, the last thing I remember seeing in my father's eyes was fear. Stark, raving fear. And because of my circumstances, my sister has children, and everybody else had something else, but I was available. So I stayed there those last three days and nights. And if you've been around someone who's dying, the dying process is not pleasant. You know, just the things the body goes through and and everything that manifests as a result of that. And, and um, on that... Near the end, um, the day before he died, he was in a coma three days. He, um, he started having a seizure. And... His eyes were open, but we didn't know what he saw. But my sister just, she knew how frightened he was of that. So she went down the hallway screaming for a nurse. And I was able to take my dad's hand and look into his eyes and comfort him and talk to him. And I don't know what he heard, and I don't know if he saw anything. But what I do know that is, if he did see or hear anything, uh, he heard and saw a lot. I was able to be there for him and with him. He um, he had another seizure, and then on the morning of the 31st, he was struggling. Oh, he was struggling. His breathing was so labored, and my sister and I took a walk, wondering, you know, and by this time everybody had wanted him to stay. Please hang on. Please hang on. And by this time, my brothers, everybody, they're just—it's hard to watch, you know. Why won't Why won't he go? And so my sister and I were wondering, well, maybe he needs to know something. Let's go talk to him about it. So we went back and, and we told him, I mean, he's not communicating with us, but we told him, Dad, it's okay. Everything's taken care of. You know, all the arrangements are made. You don't need to worry about anything. We're okay. The only thing that's outstanding is the boys think you should be buried in flannel. We think you ought to wear a suit, but we'll work it out. <laughs> Honest to goodness, within minutes, within minutes, my father took his last breath. And that's important because later on, and it was a very holy moment, by the way. I don't think there's anything more holy than that kind of birth or death, depending upon how you look at it. And at that moment, it didn't feel good, okay? When my father took his last breath or last exhalation... There was an overwhelming sorrow and pain and grief. Um, I mean, it hurt to the bone. It just hurt to the bone. But concurrent with that was this overwhelming awareness of the presence and love of God. Uh, it um, This wasn't God doing anything to anybody, this was God there with us, sustaining us. And, uh, later when i was reflecting upon my father's death and and under this mistaken belief that he died without knowing god and, and died in fear and how wrong that is and just kind of getting angry and somebody pointed out to me um now when you when you talk to your daddy left right Mhm. why do you suppose he stayed See, I believe at some point he had a choice. I believe that he and God did meet. That's just my belief. I believe that if he had still been frightened to die, we could have told him anything and it wouldn't have made a difference. He would have continued to hang on. But the fact that when we told him, he left, I just choose to believe that, you know, it's it's infinite God. It's beyond my understanding. And... um, I absolutely don't believe that my that God loves my father any less than me, or that God wants any less of a relationship with my father than He wants with me, uh, simply because I'm an AA and my dad's not. I don't believe that. That's not the God of my understanding. The um, we um, we buried my father. We had a beautiful ceremony. My dear friend Mike um, helped out. My dad didn't go to church, and, and and Mike knows us and the family, and and it was just it was personal and it was beautiful. And Richard, by the way, during the seven months, Richard's out there doing what he needs to do. He's, um, he originally went to see a doctor. He was very depressed, um, and he got some outside help. And he ended up being in a therapy group four nights a week, four hours a night with nine women. And uh, he laughed about it, too. <laughs> but um, he did that, and then he got back into AA. And what I mean by that, and I'm not saying anything he didn't say from the podium, Um, he began making amends that hadn't been made to some ex-wives and adult children and um, doing what he needed to do. And he approached me shortly after my father's death and he asked me if he could make amends to me. And we met, and beautiful, beautiful amends. He, um, He summed it up by telling me that He wanted my happiness for me more than anything else. Um, The man taught me so much. And that if that meant reconciling, he would be delighted to reconcile. And if that meant divorce, we could divorce. He and I both um, loved Don P. Bless his heart. And Don talks about traditions a lot. And we had uh, heard Don talk about the second tradition and how group conscience ends with a vote. And the the principle being that as long as you're talking and exchanging information, you know, God, uh, there is one ultimate authority, God, as he expresses himself. But we have to to share information. We have to talk. and, And if we continue that process, at some point we'll take a vote, but we'll know what it is before we take it because we'll be of one mind. And so Richard and I decided that we would not call for a vote. We would just let the second tradition work in our relationship. And it wasn't too much after that, too much longer after that, that um, he had been going to the doctor that summer because he'd had back pain and stomach pain and had seen a lot of GI people. And anyway, I got a call on a Friday that his uh, CAT scan came back very abnormal and that we needed to bring him into the hospital for the weekend. So I called him up and we went by and picked him up after work, and we, uh, we went to the hospital, and, and this is in um, August. And between my dad's death and his death, by the way, my first sponsor, Janet, had um, come back and gotten sober, and she had died in June, and Richard's sponsor, Phil, had died in July, but these are people who had great faith, and so they died very differently than my dad. But it was still, you know, it's a lot of... And we all do it. If we live, we observe death. The, um, But the point is, we went to the hospital, and when we got on the elevator, she pushed the seventh floor. And we knew what that was. That's the oncology unit. And um, between the first floor and the seventh floor, without a word, Richard and I had our group conscience. Um, we... Just took each other's hand, and um, and we knew what to do. We got to the seventh floor. We got to his room. The doctor showed up, and he explained to us that Richard had pancreatic cancer. And the following morning, we got the prognosis. It had already metastasized to several major organs. And when he left the hospital Sunday, we picked up his stuff. And by this time, by the way, I had moved into a little one-bedroom apartment, after my dad's death, it was just the right time. So I moved into a little one-bedroom apartment that I could afford. <laughs> and um, anyway, we picked up Richard's stuff, and we I brought him home, and it was just big enough. And for the next two and a half months, uh, Richard and I got to live together and love each other in a way I never thought was possible. We got to enjoy an intimacy... That had absolutely nothing to do with sex, and uh, and he taught me so much. Pancreatic cancer wastes the body, and I watched this man literally disappear before my very eyes. One of the things that um, became so abundantly clear, you know, I'm so I'm so immature, and I have so many childish ideas, and I watched this man literally disappear. Um, He's 5'11", almost 6 feet tall, and uh, near the end of his death, he was maybe 80 pounds. And I was helping him with his bath one day, and he knew what he looked like. He was watching himself in the mirror. And he asked me uh, if I found him repulsive, and it just broke my heart. the um the truth was that as he diminished physically before my very eyes, I found him more precious you know and, and I have these ideas my entire life I've been so judgmental about this vessel that God gives us that allows us to be here you yeah. I've been judgmental about my own and about you know everyone else's and um, just never really appreciated what this vessel is really about, and what it's really all about is just simply a vehicle for our, for us to be here on planet Earth today. The uh, uh, he uh, he didn't want to die without me, which. Uh, I mean, I'm the woman that oftentimes he didn't want to be around me because I would break your heart so deeply. And he didn't want to die without me. And he didn't. Um, we stayed at home. Um, and um, people like you, thank you, brought meetings in to Richard. Yeah, and just did what AA does. The um, We ended up in hospice because... Um, near the end he woke me up and told me that he needed to go to the hospital because he couldn't breathe and we went to the hospital and um he was getting at some point at one point several after hours after we were there just very agitated and and um he was in a lot of pain even with the morphine and thank god for morphine um he was up and he was down and and um and at one point, I suggested to him that um, he didn't have to struggle anymore. He could just relax and take it easy. And he did. Um, and he drifted into a coma. Uh, but he waited. He had. Um, this was just. This was just shortly before I met you, all you good folks in Virginia, um, Richard. Um, his daughter had just, her husband had gotten a job transfer to Richmond. And so he waited, I think, <laughs> until she and her family and, and his sisters got here. They're all over the place. And and when everybody was here, he died. Yeah. And, uh, again, it was a very, very holy moment. Um, painful, didn't feel good, but it was good. And we had an AA funeral. Yeah. The, um um... I got to tell you it was it was interesting because before he died his daughter had just moved to Richmond I mean literally like a week before he was diagnosed and so they came back for a visit and uh, you know and, and I was present for the birth of my granddaughter and and it's just it's hard you know and I was thinking how am I going to get to how am I going to stay in contact with with them how am I going to see them and then it occurred to me what's already taken care of because I'm talking at the convention. Yeah. <laughs> and it was. Uh anyway, that's off the track. It's just everything happens on time in God's world. I didn't know when I got invited to come talk at the Richmond convention or the whatever the whatever it was, Hampton. Um I didn't know that, you know, prior to that Richard was gonna die and his daughter and my granddaughters were going to be here and I'd be able to extend my visit. I didn't know that. I can't know. I don't know. But um but anyway, so they come, and Richard dies, and we have uh, a typical AA funeral. I'm sure that, that you've all been there, seen them. And our families, they knew we were in AA, obviously, but they never really hung out with people like you. <laughs> and at the funeral, it was they hung out with people like you. And it was, uh, it was extraordinary because there was lots of love and lots of good things were said. And it was a, truly a celebration of his life. And afterwards, at his sister's house, his niece, I love this story, his niece, who was 14 at the time, came up to me and she said, Aunt Linda, I said, yeah. She said, I wish I was an alcoholic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I heard what she was saying. See, what she experienced alcoholism to be was this. You know, what she connected with alcoholism was this energy, this love, this unity. You know, and, and kids get it. You know, they get it. And, uh, and she got it. Yeah. The, um, and if we leave that kind of legacy, even just here and there, what a beautiful thing to leave. What a beautiful thing to leave. The um, Richard had a daughter, an older daughter that he didn't know uh, until she was an adult. She found him, and her name is Michelle, and she um, she never really got to know him the way she would have liked to. And I felt compelled after the funeral to give her his big book because um, it had his notes in it. I mean, she'd never had the relationship with him that she'd wanted and was feeling really cheated and abandoned. She didn't say so, but anyway, I just was guided to give her his big book, and so I did. And um, that was in November of 2000, and I got an email from her November 14th of 2001, and says, Linda, hello, how are you doing? I am well, I'm pregnant, and I'm emailing you because I wanted to thank you. This was her second child. Anyway, I wanted to thank you. I started going to AA meetings 2 months ago. I have a sponsor and she's great. I read regularly from my father's big book. I'm working through step 2, which has been difficult for me. I have come to believe that you and my father helped me understand what a higher power can mean. When you gave me the big book, I had no idea that he was going to save me. I was going to call you, but I knew that I would only cry. Thank you so much for helping me find the gift of sobriety. I know that this November must be difficult, and I send you all my love. Blah, blah, blah. Um, It's the 12th step in action with nothing more than the book. I mean, really, nothing more than the book. And um, I talked to her um, this past fall, and she's making amends, you know. And the beat goes on. Yeah, the beat goes on. I um, continued to live in that little one-bedroom apartment and pay my bills. Uh, And I don't know how it happened, but the five-year get-out-of-debt plan was done. Well, I know how it happened. Uh, It was done in three years because somehow I managed to start saving money. (laughs) Go figure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And uh so I started saving money and I got to a point where what I had saved equaled you know what I owed was diminishing and what I was saving was and they were the same and I thought well I'll just keep saving cuz I don't I'm not paying any interest over here and I couldn't do it. it's like nah no, it's not right this isn't your money this is their money they want their money back Linda so <laughs> so I paid it off in 3 years instead of 5 and amazingly by that time ah uh, I was free to go or free to stay. I'm in this little one-bedroom apartment, which, by the way, at one time in my life, sober, I could not have done. I certainly couldn't have had anybody over there. And Margaret came and stayed with me. She came in fifth step there in that little dinky little one-bedroom apartment. Um, I was free to do anything there. I mean, I couldn't have large parties, but <laughs> not without being really cozy. But the point is, is that I didn't need to have something bigger and better. I truly was free to stay there uh, or leave. And uh, another lady I walk with uh, is a realtor, and she was trying to convince me that at the time, you know, interest rates were low, you really should buy a house, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't know, I don't know. You know, I finally have some cash flow again. (laughs) And um, anyway, it didn't matter. And so just kind of looked casually and the short story is i i did end up buying a house that i didn't really i mean i liked it and it felt right and it was it was just the right house but it was actually out of my price range so i didn't make any offer and then she came back and she said well they dropped the price i'm like oh really so well i don't know you know i don't know uh well then a few days later a couple weeks later they dropped the price again i'm like oh okay well i guess (laughs) yeah And I mean, this is just so foreign to me to not be attached because when I go shopping for anything, I don't care if it's, I don't care what it is, I'm really attached. (laughs) And I gotta have it and I've gotta have it now. (laughs) Uh, But I ended up getting, I got the house and it was a conscious decision. I mean, I understood that, okay, you can have cash flow or you can have a mortgage, you know, and there are different outcomes to both and either one's okay and it is okay. Uh, I have a guest room now, which is wonderful. Because you know people can actually sleep there, um, I open my home up to my family and to my friends, and it's just a modest little three bedroom um, it's fine you know it's it's a blessing it's um it's a house it's my home you know and um and I love being there it's my sanctuary i um prior to that, I don't know what this keeps coming to mind, so I need to share it i if you've been a caretaker of that type and and I was for a while my dad and then richard you just it's kind of like anything else you get really involved in uh, service work even when when you're done you're just kind of like missing an arm or something it's like what do you do and and then there's the grief and everything else and by the way i don't think that grieving means that we're not spiritually fit you know we're human and um and my grief would just come in waves. I'd be absolutely stable and okay, and then out of nowhere I'd be weeping in the middle of the grocery store, you know, in a staff meeting at the office. It just just came like that for me. But um, I enrolled in this flower arrangement class. I'd always wanted to, to do this and hadn't. And, and it was a once-a-week class, and it was maybe the fourth or fifth week. And I was... The joy of the present. You know, I was arranging these flowers, and it was just about the flowers. I don't know why I'm tearing up like this, um, but it was just about the flowers, and it was just pure joy. And it—I mean, they were just flowers, <laughs> but it's the kind of joy that I do get to experience every now and then when I'm just totally present. Yeah. Um. I can remember having the same experience with a spider. I was, <laughs> there was a spider. Have you ever watched a sw- spider make a web? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, I would have missed that. I would have been at the mall. Yeah. <laughs> um, just all kinds of joys. The, um, We're going to take a break and then have one more short session. But before we do that, um, I'm jumping around a little bit. But the 10th step talks about this vision um, that we develop. And on page 85 after we've uh made amends and we're uh, we're into 10 and and in and in between 10 and 11 it talks about how it's easy to let up on this spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels which i thought was a plant when i first came in i <laughs> uh, I, I didn't get it you know someone explained to me later what laurels were But... Uh, <sighs> Says, we're not cured of alcoholism, but we have a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And then they tell me, I think, uh, one of the ways that I maintain my spiritual condition every day is a day when I must carry the vision of God's will into all my activities. I used to think that God's will was my activities, you know, that God's will for me was what I'm going to do. You know who I'm. You know I'm going to be married. I'm going to be his wife. I'm going to be this person at work. I'm going. You know whatever. Um, but after meditating upon this for quite some time, I have come to believe that when it says every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will, which I don't know God's will, but I develop a vision of it in, in my meditation. I have to carry the vision of God's will into all of my activities. It's a subtle twist, but for me, I don't think the activities are God's will. I think it's what I bring to the activity, which is me. You know, am I bringing, what am I bringing? Am I bringing the selfish, fear-driven, chaotic mess (laughs) that I can be on any given moment? Ah. Or am I bringing something else? You know, am I bringing calmness? Am I bringing happiness? Am I br- bringing a desire to serve? Or am I bringing a desire to be served? <laughs> so I've, I've really come to believe that God's will is about who I am right now. What would you have? Direct my attention to what you would have me be. And that's what I take into my activities. Personally, I don't think God cares what I'm doing. I really don't. I mean, why, why should he? Yeah. I mean, whether I'm working here or working there, married to him, married to him, married to her. I mean, why would he care? Yeah. Uh, I think he cares how I behave. I think he cares how I treat his other kids. I think he cares uh, maybe not where I work, but how I work with you. I don't think he cares who I marry, but how I honor the sanctity of marriage. You know, those are just. That's not big book. That's Linda. Um, those. That's just where I am today. And then it goes on to say this prayer con- continues with. How can I best serve Thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. Well, how often would constantly be? <laughs> yeah. It does. You know. I have to practice that. These are not thoughts that go with me constantly. Okay? So I need to be reminded. Um, that these are thoughts which must go with me constantly. And guess what? This is where I get to exercise will. It says we can exercise willpower along this line all we wish. It's the proper use of will. So finally, I know what to do with this gift of will that God has given me. And that is to try to develop and carry a vision of his will into my activities and um, pray. How can I best serve you? Later on in our 11th step, they tell us twice that we have to constantly remind ourselves that we are no longer running the show. Um, I have to constantly remind myself that I am no longer running show. the show. Uh, the 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 beautiful thing about the 11th step is that we get precise directions. The book goes immediately into... Um, ways to pray and meditate and specifically when we retire at night what we do and i think that's in perfect order to begin at night i mean they begin the entire 11 step practice with when we retire at night we constructively review our day you know and that's my prayer and that's my meditation and i think that's ideal because when i reflect upon my day and i ask myself and meditate upon those questions where was i resentful selfish dishonest what should i have done instead was i kind and loving on and on i get a checklist if you will for things that i might need to take care of tomorrow you know if and i've i have had to go back to the dry cleaners and apologize make amends to the person there because i took my little hoity-toity self in there and they weren't moving quick enough for me and you're here to serve me and oh oh ugly the um but if I'm doing that nighttime meditation and constructively reviewing my day, then I have an opportunity to take care of things quickly. You know, and my life doesn't become like the toilet that's never flushed. I um, I know it's it's a graphic. It's someone else gave it to me. I like it though. I, <laughs> I'll tell you the other benefit of doing this at night, this constructively reviewing my day and going through these questions is, you know, at the beginning it was always, um, was I selfish? Yeah. Was I dishonest? Uh Uh-huh. Was I afraid? You betcha. Do I own apology? A couple. Have I kept something to myself? Mm Mm-hmm. Image management, can't talk about it. Was was I kind and loving toward all? Uh Uh-uh. What could I have done better? Quite a bit. Was I thinking of myself most of the time, practically? Or was I thinking of what I could do for others? Mm, A little bit. <laughs> but we must be careful; don't drift into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection, because that's just self-centeredness. It's going to diminish my usefulness to others. And then I ask God's, uh, ask and accept God's forgiveness, and ask what, what corrective action should be taken. And I meditate upon that. And so I've got, I've got what I need to start. Then I, I literally make a list some night so that I can put my head on my pillow and know that I can take care of it tomorrow. Now, what happens after a while is I start doing this and was I resentful today? No. Wow. Do I owe an apology? Not today. Not today. Um, was I thinking of what I could do for others? Yeah, to some extent I was. You know, and over time I begin to see what grace looks like. Over time I begin to see the miracle manifesting itself in my life. And it's not of me. You know, and I get to see that just by paying attention. You know, and I know that's not of my doing. Um, that's the miracle. And if I'm not practicing this, I'll miss it. It may be happening, but I won't be aware of it. And <laughs> who would want to miss that? You know, your own experience. The, um, the fact that we then. Uh, On awakening, we think about the 24 hours a day. We consider our plans. We don't make them. (laughs) I used to make them. I'd sit down and and I'd say the prayer. I'd ask God, direct my thinking, divorce it from self-pity, dishonest self-seeking motives, and let me make my to-do list. (laughs) And if I make my to-do list, there's no room for spontaneity. There's no room for God's will. I'm going to consider my plans. And it tells me in the book that at this point, God gave me brains to use, and I can use them. It also tells me my thought life 's going to be on a much higher plane. my thinking 's cleared of wrong motives, and the wrong motives were identified that 's what I asked to be divorced from. It also tells me that i 'm going to face indecision well if i 'm making a to do list there 's no indecision. I know exactly what i 'm going to do don 't get in my way <laughs> yeah i got to be there now um, it 's interesting to see how that works on the interstate when i 've got to be there now. <laughs> the um but I might face indecision, and they tell me exactly what to do ask, pray, ask for inspiration, intuitive thought, or a decision, and here's the part that's the most difficult and then relax and take it easy relax don't think harder, <laughs> relax and take it easy we don't struggle i don't know about you, but that's just counterintuitive for me when i've when i've when i'm indecisive i just i need i need to make I need to do something take some action let's Get a bigger hammer. Let's figure it out. And I'm told not to do that. To just relax and take it easy. That's practicing faith for me. And it is amazing how, if we will do that uh, and practice that faith, the answers come. Sometimes they're not God's answers, but (laughs) and the book says that we're likely to make all kinds of take all kinds of absurd actions. Um, I bought oils once because it was God's will. Yeah. The um I d- I've done a lot of things because I thought it was well, ha, now tell me this happens. you know he or she walks into the room, your eyes meet, and oh, it's a God thing. it's a God thing, yeah, or the dress is on sale it's a God thing yeah. the um so I'm told how to start my day. I'm told that I can share that meditation with others. I'm told how to pray, and then I'm told that as I go through the day and I become agitated or doubtful, and I will, I always do, you know, I'm irritated or I don't know what to do. Well instead of thinking harder, <laughs> it's suggested that I pause. Imagine that. Pause when agitated or doubtful and pray. You know, and ask for the right thought or decision. And um and this is when, here's the part I forget. We, As we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or decision. And I want it now. <laughs> but then I have to read the next line, which says, we constantly remind ourselves that we are no longer running the show. Saying to ourselves many times each day, thy will be done. And, um, and I had to put that on a little post-it next to my computer at work because I just forget. I leak. I know the stuff. I read the stuff. I read the stuff with others, and then I go into the office or anywhere else and I forget. I have to constantly remind myself that I'm no longer running the show. And that, I think, means constantly. And I do need to be reminded of that constantly. And then we have um, wonderful um, 11-step promises. And on page 88, it says that um, if we do these things... We are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. We become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily. Anybody get tired? I mean, do you just have days where, man, I'm just so tired? It's amazing how well meditation works. Meditation works so well that I'll stop using it. (laughs) This is working. I think I'll stop. (laughs) and then I'm exhausted again Um, we do not tire so easily for we're not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves it works, it really does and they tell us that we are undisciplined and that we let God discipline us in the simple way just outlined the first 11 steps and I used to have this really uh, negative feeling about discipline I associated it with punishment Um, which it's not. You know, I'm so glad for Webster's. Uh, But the way I understand discipline today, it's a very loving thing, you know. And parents, for instance, who insist that their children brush their teeth really love their children. They're willing for the child to be unhappy for a moment and have teeth so that he or she can eat, you you know, to 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 love enough to provide the structure that's needed for another person's welfare, is hard work. You know, it's hard work, and it's it's hard as humans. Um, and I can see where that does and doesn't happen as a human. But I think it's so beautiful that we, uh, and there are many other spiritual practices that have the same thing, but this one works for me, and it's so beautiful that that some power greater than myself. Loved us so much that he literally inspired a book of direction that would give me what I cannot give myself, which is a loving discipline, a way of living, a design for living that really, really works. Um, I think it's probably time for a break, and then we'll come back for a short session, I guess. So, you want to take 10 minutes? Okay.